are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Eileen Boris, Paul Professor and Distinguished Professor of Feminist Studies, Professor of History, Black Studies, and Global Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Thank you, Dr. Boris, for joining me today. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm so glad you could join us because I found your article, Arm in Arm, Racialized Bodies and Color Lines, which talks about Lillian Smith, of course, um, Richard Wright and Chester Himes. And I found it really fascinating. And as you mentioned earlier, when we were talking as 20 years old, which I was just graduating undergraduate at that time. Um, I feel so old now. But anyways, I have a few questions for you uh, just about Lillian Smith and just to talk about her work and kind of her impact, maybe even at that specific moment in 2000, but also kind of her continued importance today. So first of all, can you talk about finding Lillian Smith's work, um, how you came across it, what kind of impact that had on you? Sure. Uh, as a feminist studies historian who's always interested in the relationship between the past and the present, I came across Lillian Smith because I was looking for a usable past of anti-racist white women. And I see her as part of a trajectory of women, like uh, earlier uh, Mary White Ovington, who was a founder of the NAACP and a white woman socialist coming from a wealthy family in New York. And later on in my own generation, of course, there was many people who tried to define themselves as race traders, as the term was, and looking at what it meant to be an ally to the freedom struggles of people of color. And so Smith came up, if you study American literature, if you look at the the history of uh, the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s in the U.S. South. So I was really looking for people like that. And I taught as a white woman at Howard University in the history department uh, from the mid-1980s to the late 1990s. And I found her. And I see her that long trajectory, too. You mentioned some people there, but she's mentioned people like Evelyn Scott and others in the South, Mm -hmm. who I haven't dove into yet. But... My work for my dissertation was in the 19th century. I see her in that trajectory of Northeasterners like Lydia Maria Child and even Sedgwick yeah. to a certain extent, Catherine uh, Maria and all of that. So there's a long tradition, a long line that she's tracing back to and tracing forward to. You mentioned teaching at Howard, and that leads me kind of to my next question because you mentioned in your article that you're from the Northeast, that area, and you moved to the South, um, Howard and Washington, D.C., around that area. You also taught at University of Virginia, correct? Right. Yeah. So how did that, even teaching at Howard and at UVA, those are two totally different schools, one an HBCU, one a state school, of course. How did moving to the South influence you, influence you and how did kind of those separate spaces influence you in your teaching and thinking about Smith? Right. 
Well, I guess I grew up with the civil rights movement of the 1960s and as a student radical embraced it. And I suppose I was more of, of a uh, race and class gal and, and didn't discover feminism until it uh, found me with the nature of my life at certain points of time. And as an undergraduate, I had student internships at the, and this is in Boston, uh, not your most uh, friendly place for uh, African-Americans, uh, although there was a great abolitionist tradition there. And things that were not necessarily taught, but things that, of course, I learned later, too. Yeah. About uh, Boston not being the, the a spot in the Northeast that we think of as being equal and egalitarian yeah and well, free of issues like, like all places whether we're talking about the right. south the west the southwest it's always complex there's always internal divisions and there's always struggle right so i had the opportunity to work in a uh, social settlement house the south bay union uh between my uh I think my first and second year or my second and third year of college. And then I had later the opportunity to work at the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. And that was really fascinating. Uh, that was, I guess it was after my junior year in college. And why, and the reason why that was so interesting is I saw the way in which a institution that was set up to fight discrimination could be used by people who really wanted to perpetuate inequalities because it all depended who the staffing was. And the executive director at that time uh, came from a Boston uh, political tradition that was not actually that friendly to the goals, some of the major goals of the um, commission. So it was quite an eye opener uh, working there. And it uh, reminded me how much I preferred grassroots action uh, to the state. But uh, I was quite impressed by Mrs. Ballantyne, who actually was a Republican appointee, uh, who was the head of the commission, because she understood how you could use uh, such entities for social justice. Uh, so so I, the first class I ever TA'd for was right after I graduated uh, BU that summer for Joseph Boskin, who taught African-American history at BU. So I was already interested in questions of race, certainly social justice and uh, black history. Uh, and years later, when I was fortunate enough uh, to uh, gain uh, a position at Howard, it was really uh, such a great learning experience because I had the opportunity to listen and learn from my students. And while I could open up avenues for them, they taught me so much and I had some amazing students like Natalie Moore, the journalist, and Tashishi Coates, and um, and others who were really quite wonderful to. One of the things you just mentioned there, which I think is really important, is listening. 
Can you kind of expound upon that a little bit, listening to students or listening to others? Yeah, I think you have to uh, be open and to realize you really don't know much. But what you know is from books. And that, as I used to tell my students in uh, like a historiography class, uh, look, I'm, I'm not of African descent, but I've studied it. But I have, none of us in this room have lived a life historically, but some of us have family traditions and stories. Uh, and we all have to just be really open and listen to the sources and listen and, and get a common body of knowledge that we can play off of. And sometimes we're going to be really surprised, like learning and Ira Berlin article, the way Ira Berlin about slavery in on Long Island, there's my Boston accent, uh, from the uh, 18th century of owners of enslaved people giving them the horses to ride. And I had students, I remember when we read that article, who were so skeptical. How could that be? Why would they trust? an enslaved person with a horse that can get away. And I would ask other students to comment and give answers to the student who raised such a question rather than me. And then end the discussion with something like, well, if we want to believe that people were so beaten down that they couldn't thrive in any way, then how did a people survive? Yep. So, you know, it just shows the complexity, how dependent those white farmers in the North were. Which a lot of the discussion, of course, recently with the 1619 Project and everything right. points that out. Things yep. that we know as academics, but um, the general public may not necessarily know or realize. So, which leads me kind of to another question, because those are all really interesting things, and even things I think we can go further into if we don't have time here with the commission and staffing, which makes me think of academia. Um, the importance of listening as, as teachers, not just teaching and relaying information, but listening to students' stories. But I want to kind of go back to your article real quick, because one thing that kind of struck me, you kind of start, you frame it a little bit around Chester Hines' novel, If He Hollers, Let Him Go which it's been years and years since I read that novel, and it was years and years before I even read Lillian Smith's Strange Fruit. And you mention in there, you say, and that novel was 1945, you say that the protagonist, Bob Jones, you talk about him sitting around with other people, and they're discussing two novels. They're talking about Strange Fruit from 1944, Lillian Smith, and it's about Richard Wright's Native Son from 1939. And this is what you write. You kind of have this question, or they ask this question. Which novel or which author, quote, better charted the relationships of whites and blacks, the tangled skin of hate and desire that marked the imaginative as well as political landscape in the early 1940s as the modern civil rights movement exploded during World War II? And when I read this, you know, at, before I even read Smith, I kind of was struck and want to go back and read it. But here's my question. I would assume that this resonated with people in 45 because Strange Fruit was banned in places. It was a taboo novel. Um, Wright's novel won awards. They were talked about. So can you describe this scene a little bit, what happens, you know, and, and comment on its importance, I would say, with 
possibly within Himes' novel and maybe even within, within that cultural moment. The end of World War II, um, Himes' novel talks about World War II when African Americans working in the defense industry, basically, out West. Yeah. Yeah. So can you kind of talk about those things a little bit, describe the scene and talk about that? Well, the novel is an incredible novel about class and race, racialized gender, which is the term I use. And it really is about love and hate across the color line and desire, things that Lillian Smith, of course, captures so well in her work. And the scene is one, Bob Jones, who is uh, educated, but working in a factory, as many black men who have education find themselves working in jobs below their own uh, skills and abilities, given the racialized gender structure. Uh, He's in a defense, an aircraft plant, and he has a social worker girlfriend, Alice, who comes from a higher class of the black community. And she is having some soiree with two of her co-workers, one a black woman, the other a white man, and they're having this discussion. And what's so fascinating about that moment is that it really encapsulates the, uh, the difficulties of crossing the color line of people really having relationships with each other but also the way in which gender, sexuality, and class filter into this. In, in the, because the novel, what happens, a white woman temptress who's interested in Jones in the factory uh, is rejected by him and she calls rape to the higher ups and he ends up being forced into the army at the end. Uh, and in, in a way, his fate uh, is between what happens to Bigger Thomas and what happens to uh, Nani and her lover. It's in between the two. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he's not killed. He's sent to the army. He's sent to the army. He's not killed. And of and, course, Nani's not killed either, but there yeah. is a symbolic, basically, lynching right. at the end of that right. novel. Right. And he is, right, he's, he's not killed, but he is emasculated, you could argue. And, and so it's, uh, it is really fascinating that you have this intertextual moment, which suggests that writers are reading each other. And it tells us about the impact, of course, of Richard Wright's older novel, but also Lillian Smith's the notoriety of that novel, which had been banned in Boston. Uh, well, like I was telling you earlier, when I went up to the, actually the center and the libraries up there where Laurel Falls Camp was, I was looking on the shelf full of Richard Wright. Um, I don't remember if I saw Native Son or not, but Black Rage and other things. And then at the top of one of the shelves is If He Hollers, Let Him Go, next to another Himes novel. And I, when I saw that, I was kind of not shocked, but it was really fascinating. And then I read your article and I was like, OK, so these connections, these interplays and even seeing the books that she had up there is just fascinating. Um, Hannah Ardent, um, 
ton of Freud, of course, for her stuff, but just things from all over the world, even things from Scandinavia, from Africa, from everywhere. Her library was full of stuff. She was worldly in her knowledge and her reading. And she really captured on an interpersonal and intimate level, on a psychological level, the very love-hate relationship the entanglement of black and white in this country uh, that's that for a long time, not the whole country, maybe not in the West, set the paradigm for race relations so that people in power would look at Mexicans or Japanese or other groups through that paradigm of black and white. And she talks, one of the pieces I read from her um, recently from 42, Buying a World with Confederate Bills. Mm. It's a precursor to her speech she gave in 1960, but it was in South Today. And the words that she said kind of follow with what you're saying and really kind of struck with me. So I kind of want to end on, you know, what do you hope the contemporary readers kind of take away from her work? What do you think that we should, what do you think she's trying to tell us all these years later? Well... That's a big question, <laughs> and it's the us. You know, different people read. Oh, oh, but, but let's rephrase it. What do you hope the contemporary readers? Well, what I think? hope the contemporary readers in this 1619 moment yes. understand that one, our histories are totally intertwined. Not only because we it, it, we are participated in settler colonialism even the forced or chosen uh, together against the indigenous peoples of the Americas, uh, but that it has been intimate and that, but it's also to remember that there have been white people who have passed their lot with the freedom struggle of uh, people of color. And I think that's important for us to remember that we will not be alone if we walk that path and that social justice begins at home. Education and everything. So thank you for taking some time to speak with us today. It was a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. And uh, it's wonderful what you're doing uh, with William Smith. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.